0: Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action and when you use the link you're supporting That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. You're listening to Intelligence Squared. Today we're looking at what's in store in the year ahead for 2022, and here's the host, Justin Webb, with more.
1: Welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event. I'm delighted to go straight to our guest tonight, to Martin Wolf, who you will all know as associate editor, chief economics commentator as well at the Financial Times, and has his own book, a rather more serious one potentially for me, one more useful in these times than mine, I fear, will be, The Shifts and the Shocks, What We Have Learned and Have Still to Learn from the Financial Crisis. That is the name of his book, but he's going to talk much more widely this evening. Martin, you are welcome. So, let's start, if we could, with the economy, uh, and then we'll range uh, more, more widely. But, but it is an obvious place to start, and the economy and COVID is the obvious place to start as well, I suppose. Where does COVID lead, leave the world economy at the moment? And what are you expecting in the next reasonably foreseeable number of months?
2: Well, uh, first of all, it's a great pleasure to be with you and I'm looking forward to this discussion on some very interesting topics. I should add, by the way, that, bu- that book was published a few years ago, and I'm very nearly f- pu- close to publishing another book on the subject which may interest you, which is called The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, uh, uh, so, as it were, the future of our world. Anyway, uh, this is, I think, sort of as quickly as I can, how I see things. Last year, uh, the world economy in general, and most, basically all the significant economies, performed much better than had been expected at the same time a year ago. And the reason for that is reasonably clear, which is that compared to what people thought would happen in January, the vaccination program progressed considerably more rapidly and covered much more of the world and above much, above all, much more of the developed world than had been expected. And growth correspondingly really exploded. And after a grim 2020, 2021 in terms of growth was astonishingly strong. That wasn't true everywhere, but it was true above all in the developed world. It's one of those situations in which the developed world did better than had been expected while that was not true of many of the developing countries. And the UK was one of the countries that did better than expected. But the US was really ahead in this respect. And that changed people's views of the future. And that was the great big positive surprise. And of course, towards the end of the year, we then had a negative surprise, or at least a couple, which is the variants, first Delta and then Omicron, a micron. And the result is that, again, we are a little bit pessimistic right now. That's the first point. And I think the, the big point here is, if we think about the future of COVID, is what sort of new variants are we going to get? Will they be both highly infectious and very bad in terms of disease, the severity of disease and death? Or with, will they be like, as a, a micro seems to be, more highly infectious, but not very deadly? Or perhaps they will be even Better than that, neither very infectious. That seems unlikely to be a significant one. And, and in any case, not deadly. And so the, what sort of variants are we going to get is a, obviously the biggest single question. At the moment, we just have this one to deal with. It seems okay. Uh, it seems sort of manageable, though it's very, very infectious. Now, the legacy of last year is that because demand was so much stronger than anyone expected, because our economies came roaring back, Inflation turned out to be also much, much stronger than anybody expected. Now that was partly because of the aggregate demand, but it was also because of its composition. And in particular, um, it was much more intensively focused on manufactured goods and much less intensively focused on services than would normally be the case. And so we ran into an, an enormous number of shortages. And that generated a lot of inflation. We also found really quite unexpected, and that wasn't to do with the composition of demand, shortages in crucial energy products, the most important for us being gas, which also generated a lot more inflation than expected. And finally, the other thing that wasn't expected, and this is particularly true in the US, but you can see it elsewhere, is the labor force shrank, or at least the labor force didn't grow as people had expected I, a lot of people left the, the labor force and so the combination of these three this the pattern of demand the shortages in key commodities and this labor force effect created unexpected in inflation and the question then is how will that work out this year and and the the there are i think two sides to thinking about this the the big shortages are likely to unwind, particularly in manufacturing. This is sometimes now being called the bullwhip effect. That uh, we we had this exceptional demand, leading to shortages, and now everybody's investing in producing more, and these will all disappear, and prices will start falling, and that will make that look much better. The labour market will adjust and sort itself out. And that will also make things better. And given how high prices of things like gas have been, it's almost certain that they're gonna go down. Indeed they are. So although these reasons a lot of this looks transitory. The worry for the central banks, and this is where I'll conclude, is that policy is still very, very stimulative by ordinary standards. And if inflation continues to be this high for a long period, it may destabilize expectations, start creating a wage price spiral. And they really don't want that. So whatever happens with inflation, my guess is we're going to see quite significant tightening of monetary policy, not dramatic, in the US and UK, less so in the Eurozone, but even there it'll begin. And that will happen anyway. Inflation will be brought under control, but it might even mean that the growth process that we've been optimistic about over the second half of this year and next year will be weaker than we hope.
1: Uh, you are sure, are you, that the tightening will work? Because it was interesting, we, we talked to the, the government of the Bank of England when, when they, they didn't raise interest rates recently, to the horror of, of, of some in the city who thought they would. And one of the things he talked about was that, that the, I mean, particularly when it comes to something as simple as, as mortgages, with so many people either don't have mortgages now in the UK context or have fixed mortgages that actually there isn't a kind of lever that you pull that has an, an impact. But, but you are that lever is still there more broadly and, and, and in a longer term, is it?
2: Well, this is a very interesting and important question. The probability would be, if this is right, what this probably means is that they're going to have to pull high, ha, harder before it does start having an effect. In particular, if they start moving short rates enough to start moving longer rates with it because people start thinking, Well, actually, these short rates are going to be higher for a long time. So the long rates must adjust to that. Then new mortgages will be more expensive and this will be true everywhere. It'll also be true in the US, which has really only fixed rate mortgages. There are also a lot of people who do, uh, for whom short rates do matter. Businesses that have uh, um, working capital loans, that short rates are very relevant to them. Um, people who borrowed to buy shares, and there's obviously been an enormous amount of that, particularly in the US, will certainly be affected by how short rates. Exchange rates will be affected in complicated ways. The, the countries where the tightening is most will tend to, their exchange rates will tend to appreciate, and that will also be contractionary. So I have no doubt the monetary policy will work, but it may be more than we expect. And if uh, and the the risk, therefore, is there will be overshoot, in the end, overshooting in the tightened direction. One of the reasons I was being very nervous about the inflation we've got and that I feared would happen in, uh, already a year or two ago is that this starts leading central banks to making big mistakes. Uh, they overreact to the current situation and that starts creating problems a year or two down the line. Monetary policy has long lags. And central banks don't like being in a situation, as our central bank is now, in which inflation is running two and a half times its target. It's embarrassing. So the likelihood, there's a real chance they will over-tighten, and that won't create problems probably for most of this year, but it could have a longer-term effect for exactly the reasons you suggest. Mm. Yeah.
1: And more widely, if we are moving from preventing COVID to coping with it, if the variants of the future, let us be optimistic, are infectious but not as harmful, what, 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 what does that do to the economy and to various sectors of the economy, do you think?
2: Well, if we go move into a situation in our country and across the world, which is very important for us, we're in an open economy, in which people are genuinely confident that this pandemic ceases to be an important day-to-day fact Factor, they can live their lives normally, the vaccines basically protect them well enough from anything serious, or the disease is simply milder. Then that's very interesting because the question is how much of the transformation of the world of our economies, what we've been doing in the last two years, will then be reversed. And that will obviously depend on how long lasting this will be. This will work in at least two linked directions. The first, of course, is how much far people will be completely, or three. First, how far will be people to be completely happy about going out and mixing with other people in the way they used to before this ever happened? Even if it's a relatively mild aversion, one could still guess that a lot of people over 50, even people who have been vaccinated, might be a bit nervous about going to Wembley Stadium or whatever it might be. That might be a factor, though it will d- diminish theatre and so forth. Will there be a permanent hit from nervous people. The second is, will everybody go back to the office? Or uh, will we continue with this hybrid arrangement? My strong view is that we have discovered ways of working that we didn't know existed. Very true for me and for many others, and we won't go back. And that has implications for office space, for the number of people who work in the center of cities. Whether you even have to live in London to work in London, maybe you, you live somewhere else, commute down two or three days a week and otherwise live somewhere else, much cheaper. This could have very profound long-term effects, even if COVID, as it were, becomes manageable because we just learned that we can live and work in different ways. That's a very controversial issue. And the final thing that I think has happened is we've done a sort of step change in buying things online and interacting online away from going out to the to shops. Now, I'm not saying they're all going to disappear, but I find it very difficult to believe that retail will go back to anything like what it was before. And the, if you have the retail with the office effects, that could have dramatic effects on the property business, which is a very important business. And a lot of these other things that I've mentioned could also have a strong effect on location and and uh, what hot locations are. So I think it's a plausible guess that the world will not go back to where it was before, even if COVID is managed and seems manageable. It will go some of the way back, yes, for sure, but it won't go all the way back. Mm.
1: Just listening to, to what you say there, that there is also an impact, isn't there, on inequality? Because when you described, you know, those of us who can work from home, As opposed to those who can't and indeed are going to be involved in delivering the stuff that we order it it, it does something i mean there are all sorts of inequalities in in the economy in our economy in the uk anyway and obviously in in other respects around the
2: world but it's a kind of opens up a new front doesn't it i think that's been obvious from the beginning of the the covid story it has very complicated ramifications initially it's quite clear that everywhere the worst hit were already as it were, the people in the worst economic situation. By and large, you know, this is pretty clear, the more, as it were, graduate you are, the more easy the easier in general it is for you to work at home. And the less you are, the more likely you are to work in something which involves intensive face to face interaction, either in a factory or in a shop or or in some up serving people and so forth. So this is not completely simple. But in general, there's no question it was uh, uh, the people who already, as it were, worst off were in general um, most hit. There are, there are exceptions, but that's the the broad story. Now, the less we go back to where we were before, and the more likely that is to continue. To give a simple answer, a very large number of people worked in sandwich bars. It's a really quite a big business. Now, if people are not going to go to work in the office, then they're going to make their sandwiches at home, a lot of them. They might buy something which will be delivered. And the delivery business is the big exception. Of course, that very explosion in the delivery business. Some of these people are doing that. Uh, But some of the old ways of work will disappear and are disappearing. And there's no doubt that The hybrid style of working, which allows people to work from home and yet do everything they would normally do, is best for people who do jobs that involve information processing and have actually quite large houses so they can have a study for themselves and they don't have to look after children at the same time, Right, people like me. And... uh, and uh, lots of other people have struggled and these are, create a lot of inequalities. And this is quite apart from the other dimension of uh, inequalities, which people much discuss, which is the COVID uh, period has seen the most massive global stock market boom. And it's uh, quite clear who benefits most from that. And I don't think those effects will be completely reversed. Uh, again, I think that's going to be a big problem in the future, though um, it's not yet clear how far that will remain the, ca- remain the case.
1: Right. Let us turn to global affairs, geopolitics um, uh, and first China, uh, if we may, Martin. What, what on earth happens? Um, we've got the Beijing Winter Olympics. We've got this sort of slightly half-hearted boycott, haven't we, by some countries. We've got a lot of questions being asked about how best to deal with china what 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 do you see the relationship between china and the outside world how do you see it developing this year
2: well this is part obviously of uh, the the year will be a a very small moment in a huge tectonic shift um which has multiple dimensions and is i think the most important geopolitical event of our time And some might even argue it's the most important geopolitical event of a century or more, which is uh, the rise of a totalitarian or close to totalitarian now superpower, which is definitively non-Western and non-European, which feels aggrieved and humiliated by history, particularly by Western action in history, which has, in an incredibly short time, moved from being a completely marginal player in the world economy to having an economy which is not merely roughly the same size as that of the US, but in many respects is technologically at the same level, not on all, far from it, but in important ones, particularly information technology or aspects of information technology, artificial intelligence in particular, huge military, and has a population of 1.4 billion. So, as I like to point out, if China manages to get a GDP per head, roughly half that of US and Europe, its economy is twice as big as the both of them together. And in addition to all this, it's of course become a dominant trading partner for a huge number of countries around the world, not only Asia, but other developing countries. And some developed countries, Australia, for example, Japan. For Germany, China is as important a trading partner as the US. It's not something to be ignored. It really is very, very different, very different from the relationship with the Soviet Union. So it is a multidimensional power, which has a capacity, I'm not sure it will achieve it, has the capacity to become vastly bigger than any of the individual elements of the Western system. Today, it's still about half the size as the whole Western system between Europe, the US and Japan together, but in economic terms, but it is growing fast and is likely to continue to do so. So how will this play out? And the truth is, we don't know. But my guess is the next, that in any given year, it is likely that relations will end up at the end of the year worse than they started. Because there's dynamic in this process. Every irritation, every action has a counter action, a reaction, as it were, on both sides, which leads to the embittering of relationship. Relationship. We can see this very, very clearly. And we, I think, both are interested in the United States. There are very few things that the Republicans and Democrats agree on. Well, one of the things is that China is the enemy, quite convenient. And there's no real dispute over this. It's only a question of who is the the most hawkish. So that's going to go that way. This creates a very interesting challenge for Europeans and including the Brits. You will remember very well just six years ago, it seems eternity away, George Osborne was saying we were then chancellor, we were going to be a very, very close friend of China. And Well, that's gone, but the question of how far it will be in the interests of Britain and Europe to align themselves with the U.S. against China and the implications of that are very unclear, Um, but the broad story is this is a world transforming event, and I think we are going to be trying to cope with it. It could blow up at any time, but even if it doesn't, relations are, I think, going to get cumulatively more and more difficult.
1: How feasible do you think it is that the outside world cooperates with China on climate change, which is so vital, of course, but continues to oppose it, indeed gets into even more uh, uh, um, uh, assertive and difficult relationships on a whole broad range of other things?
2: Well, I've argued that we should. I I did one column which I thought was quite important, which I sort of, put forward, what are the minimum things we have to agree with China in order to basically keep the world in one piece? Uh, and one of them is to solve climate change. Another is to manage to avoid a shooting war, right? Uh, you know, that's not something we want to happen. Uh, that's pretty clear. And third, we don't want a complete breakdown of the world economic system. Um, that would be very bad. These are the three sort of big things. Now... It seems to me, you know, history seems to suggest that governments and people's politics are bad, walking and chewing gum at the same time. It's the famous phrase, which I think was applied to, was it to Gerald Ford? I can't remember now, but anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was Ford, yeah.
2: Yes, I thought so. Anyway, it's very difficult to treat somebody as a mortal enemy on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and a good friend with whom you can reach good deals on Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, I mean, it's difficult in our personal lives. Uh, It really is. I mean, just think about it. Can you do that? And it's very difficult in international relations. And what you say in one forum about people, of course, affects them. People are people and affects their view of you in the other forum. So... I am. I think it will be very difficult. Now, I don't think it was an accident that she didn't go to Glasgow because I think he thought he would just be beaten up, which was, by, by the way, I think probably correct. And uh, and what he came forward with, though not irrelevant, is very, very far from what we need from China if we're going to solve this problem. So, I think that we're going to have to be unbelievably clever and subtle in the way we deal with the differences if we are going between us, if we're going to be at all good at dealing with the areas where we have common interests. But at the moment, I think one would have to say it's one of the biggest questions against our ability to handle the sorts of issues I talked about and particularly climate change.
1: Yeah, but because of course, people in foreign affairs handle their relationships with the foreign country but they also of course have to handle their domestic populations and you mentioned the united states the pressure on politicians of both sides to be tough on china in in quotes i mean do, do you see in europe as well and in and in britain a kind of a, a, a sense in which that, that great George Osborne, those George Osborne days that, as you point out, were actually not that long ago, have completely and utterly gone, not just at the level of governments, but actually the level of people as well?
2: Yes, I think that there are a number of very important dimensions. First of all, the Xi regime has... in has taken some actions, which I think the most important are probably the ones in locking up such a vast number of people in Xinjiang in with the, uh, the Uyghurs. And secondly, very significant for us, their actions basically to turn Hong Kong into just another Chinese city and extirpate its freedoms, independence, These are very provocative symbols and signals of a regime that is increasingly repressive and increasingly inward-looking, and has also made bellicose noises in other areas under Xi, notably over the South China Sea and, of course, Taiwan. This goes along with a massive arms buildup, um, which really alarms the Pentagon. As I'm sure you know, that's less of an issue for us. And then this is is inevitably connected to the sense that China is becoming not really uh, a world leader in technology, but in some areas, the world's most competitive supplier of absolutely core technologies, and that's linked to the Huawei and five G case, where, as far as I can see, they genuinely are the world leaders. Of course, their products are used all over the world, and we've used them. But um, the West is increasingly nervous about becoming technologically dependent and also backward. So there's there's a question of strategic autonomy and what strategic autonomy consists of in relationship to China and in relation to to countries that are themselves dependent uh, to a significant degree on China and subject to Chinese influence, like Taiwan which is the world's most important producers of semiconductors, which is relevant, by the way, to both sides. So the upshot of this is that on a multiplicity of dimensions, people have got really agitated. And working out, what ideally what we need to do is to work out what are the things where there are central interests, where we just, we separate. What do we do about the things... The areas where China is behaving in ways that we can do nothing about, but which we find very, very offensive. And what are the limits in terms of our reactions to that human rights and all the rest of it? What do we do about Chinese interference in our own societies through their influence upon university students, Chinese university students, but at the same time, everybody knows our universities are very dependent on Chinese students. This is spectacularly messy. And I think we're at an early stage in the West of working out what all this means and, what, and how we're going to deal with and respond to China. And at the moment, I don't think anybody has anything like a coherent policy, anybody, but we're working towards it. And I certainly think that includes the British government.
0: That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com/squared. That's netsuite.com/squared. netsuite.com/squared.
1: Before we get on to questions, um, uh, and I suppose having introduced it, i use the rather grand term geopolitics. We want to talk about a bit more than China, although, as you say, China is, dominates everything at, at the moment. Well, can I ask a question about Ukraine, but sort of link it in a way to Afghanistan? Does, does the West this year refine itself in its response to Russia in Ukraine after what happened in Afghanistan, or does, is, is that too, too, um, too optimistic a, a view?
2: It, I think it would be sort of false advertising if I pretended that I had any anything new and exciting to say about Ukraine, except that it's a very, very worrying situation. I have long felt that there is a rational solution, which all my friend many of my friends, will hate, which is to agree um, that. Um, what I think of as the Austrian solution, which is what the situation of Austria after the second world war, which was that it was a neutral country. Militarily neutral, not a member of any Alliance. Economically could have, and did have very, very close relations with the West. And of course was, became a member of the EU, the rest of it, but it was militarily neutral, but it's, it's borders were guaranteed by the relevant outside powers. That would have been the ideal solution for Ukraine, I think. I do actually, well, Putin is not my favorite human being, but I can understand why his um, anxiety about Ukraine as a NATO member, given Russian history, is completely understandable. One really can't, not any Russian, not any Russian, most Russians, I think, would feel having Ukraine as a member of a foreign alliance simply with nuclear weapons would be completely unacceptable. And therefore a deal has to be done, whether on these lines, that's my view, whether a deal can be done given the profound lack of trust in one another on both sides, perfectly understandable for long reasons, long list of reasons. And the dynamic of, of today, with Putin's massive troop movements, whether a deal can be done, I have no idea. And some of the suggestions Mr. Putin has made, and what he would like, is essentially to have a veto on the NATO involvement in all the other former former satellites, which is completely unacceptable. But anyway, I think we should be trying to do a deal, and we should be trying to freeze the situation until we do a deal. On these lines. If that doesn't happen, or if Putin uh, preempts it by acting militarily, then we are in a spectacularly dangerous situation, the outcome which is you know, vastly above my intellectual pay grade to say what the, what happens <coughs> then. I Not have no idea. Uh, Head-on head on <laughs> conflicts between superpowers of this kind and, and from a military point of view, Russia is clearly a superpower, given that it has thousands of nuclear warheads. It may not be a very big economy, but it can blow up the world. It's pretty clear this is spectacularly dangerous. and needs to be diffused massively, in, in my view, in the way I'm suggesting. But it may be too late.
1: Okay, um, let us turn to uh, questions of which we have quite a few. Um, and I'm going to start off with one that was, was given to us quite near the beginning, actually. We're, and it's right, we, we talked a bit about monetary policy, we didn't talk much about fiscal policy or government debt. And this is a question about government debt. How worried are you? How concerned about the high level of government debt relative to GDP? And not just here, but, but in Canada, and France, in Italy, and Spain, and indeed in the USA?
2: Now, this is one of those questions on which the good answer takes half an hour, but I'm not going to do that. The answer probably goes something like this. First, there was no alternative. And secondly, with luck, it's manageable. So let's just deal with those quickly. The fact that I did say with luck, important uh, qualifier. We've had two completely unexpected, though perhaps not, they shouldn't have been negative shocks the financial crisis, 2007 to 10, or even go on to 2015, if you include all the Eurozone crisis, and then COVID. And crises of this sort are events to which governments have to respond. I mean, there's just no alternative. Allowing their economies to collapse without using their capacities as borrowers and spenders of last resort would be grotesquely irresponsible. No government would survive that tried, you know, to say, okay, that's fine. We're gonna have a depression. That's clearly not gonna happen. And so they did what they had to. And fortunately, uh, but I don't think accidentally, by the way, but that's another long story, part of the half an hour answer. Interest rates have been both in real and nominal terms, exceptionally low which has made it very cheap. So that's, there was no alternative. That gets to, with luck, it's manageable. Now, one of the, the ways I calm people down is point out that, while well, our debt ratio is quite high, it depends on you measure it. Net debt is, I think, about 90% of GDP now. I can't remember the exact figure. Um, but it's worth remembering, we came out of the second world war with net debt of about 250% of GDP. So. Actually, one of my favorite statistics is if you take the average ratio of net public debt to GDP for the UK, since roughly 1700, we're below average. Uh, People don't realize how much debt the British government has been able to sell on very favorable terms for such a long time. Indeed, in my view, and that of quite a number of economists, it's the most important reason, not an accidental one, that Britain became the world power it did and was able to defeat France, a much richer and bigger economy until the 19th century, because it could borrow so easily. Now, and we got out of the, the massive post-Napoleonic war debt, which was also about 250% of GDP and the post-Second World War debt, with a mixture of very rapid growth and some inflation. Now, the crucial debt, da- and this is the last point in this, the manageability debt depends ultimately on the relationship between interest rates and the growth of the economy. assuming we don't have further shocks, very, very big assumption, could well be wrong. If we have a reasonably sound fiscal position, which I think is plausibly going to come on a flow basis, on the deficit basis, then the key question is in terms of interest. So I'm not going to go into primary deficit and all the rest of it, but the key thing is that interest rates remain relatively low relative to real rates of growth. At the moment, UK long-term interest rates are negative in real terms. They're negative, highly negative. That's probably a bit freakish. Let's just say there's going to be zero. You have to be spectacularly pessimistic to think the British economy won't grow faster than zero, but that's stagnation forever. So assume that it's going to grow 1.5%, 1% to 1.5%, and real interest rates continue to be as low as they are. I don't think debt is a very big problem. And that's more or less the situation of other countries. And it's certainly not a big problem if we actually go out now and convert most of our debt into very long-term debt, because even if interest rates rise, most of the debt, which is a stock, will be then at very, very low interest rates. And fortunately, the maturity of British debt is exceptionally long. So we have a very long breathing period before it becomes a big problem. If, however, real interest rates explode upwards relative to growth, then we generate a, we do get into a very big problem. And that's one of the most controversial issue in economics at the moment. Will real interest rates, which have been declining actually for about 20 years, remain so incredibly low? Or are they a temporary consequence of a whole set of huge shocks, including monetary policy, They will reverse, they will go up much higher. Say we have 3% real interest rates, growth is one and a half percent, inflation becomes a problem. So nominal interest rates are even higher. In the long run, debt then becomes a problem. But it's a long way from that. So my view is, of the things I worry about right now, this is actually fairly low down. I'm much more worried about private sector debt actually. And I'm much more worried about the possible consequences of a huge stock market crash.
1: OK, uh, an, an allied question about the UK economy comes from Brendan. To what extent should the West, including the UK, seek to reshore manufacturing and strategic industries from China? Is it feasible? What policies would be needed to make it a reality if we, if we were to do that?
2: I have come to the view, which is not a view I would have had 10 years ago, that it is reasonable to to try and define, as we've always done in the past, it's been normal. What are the industrial, what are the things we need to know how to do and be able to do simply to, to guarantee a reasonable degree of effective autonomy? You yeah. know, In the old days, you needed to be able to produce steel so you could produce tanks and battleships. And there were good reasons for that, quite clear. In Britain's case, the biggest source of vulnerability was its dependence on imports of food, which is why in the Second World War in particular, we focused very much on being self-sufficient in food. Nowadays, I think it's plausible that the West as a whole wants to have the capacity to support high-tech production, which includes military production, and that means the capacity to produce develop and produce chips, it means the capacity to develop and produce advanced electronics, and it means the capacity to be pretty significant players in AI and advanced IT more broadly. And there are some other sectors in which the West has a dominant comparative advantage now, like life sciences, which we would surely want to maintain for our futures. So I think it is reasonable, and we've already talked about Huawei and, and these are areas where you might say, well, we want, we want to have the capacity to do things on our own if we can. Now, bringing back all of manufacturing is, I think, impossible. Even if we stopped buying it from China, it wouldn't come here. You know, We lost the clothing industry. Are we going to work hard to, to put people back into to making clothing. We lost the textile industry AIDS ago. Is that our future? I honestly really doubt it. Simple manufacturing of various kinds, you know, making tools and so forth. I really don't see that. We wouldn't bring back jobs because basically all the new factories will be automated. That really aren't gonna employ many people, but there are clearly advanced sectors. Aerospace is another one where we also want to remain central. And I think this is a discussion the Europeans are having, the Americans are having. And I think what we're going to have to do is be very discriminating, but we're not going to go back. Deindustrialization, in the sense of the declining share of the workforce in industry in general and manufacturing in particular has gone on in the Western world for the last 40 years. And it's gone on essentially because the growth in demand for these products is not that dramatic now that we're relatively wealthy, and productivity continues to rise. So if the aim is not to give us strategic autonomy, which seems to be very important, but to generate a whole set of new jobs, I think it's completely infeasible. We're not going to go back to the mass labor forces in manufacturing we had before. The, the basic technology has moved on. Uh, the, the way I think I put it is that what's happening to manufacturing is what happened to agriculture. We produce more than we ever did, And it used to take 70% of the labour force. It now takes 1%. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay, let me ask you three questions together. They're not linked in any way, but I think we want to get through a a fair number. So um, if you can hold these... In your mind, or indeed on a piece of paper, or I can remind you as we go through, Martin, one question about Trump. Let's assume he's the next U.S. president. What would it mean uh, for trade wars, for U.S.-Sino relations, etc.? What does what, what the prospect of another Trump administration mean? There's a question from Ken in Bristol about Brexit. Um, will the EU survive in its current format? Is the EU going to have to reform um, because we've left, and a question from Tasmania, Australia, about cyber and ransomware attacks. How do they affect businesses in the in the short term? Um, they're increasing. What what is their impact on on businesses on the global economy?
2: Okay. Reverse order. I think the cybersecurity issue, broadly defined, of which ransomware, r- ransom ransomware, is an important sub-issue is among the biggest challenges and and problems we face. And there are many other sorts of attacks which are more worrying than ransomware, including mass denial of service attacks. The answer to this is so far, as far as I can see, and I'm not an expert on this, business treats it as another overhead cost, like fraud and all the rest of it. And it's a, a real irritant, a real nuisance. They don't say much about it for very obvious reasons, but clearly life is going on. But it's like all these things. Essentially, these are brigands or gangsters. And brigandage and gangster is a deadweight loss on the economy. And if it gets big enough, it becomes a very big problem. We don't seem to be there yet, but I don't think anybody can be confident we won't get there given the nature of the technologies they're able to use and the vulnerability of all businesses given that they're all now online businesses. Brexit and the EU. I think the major... My one of my jokes is that the uh, if Brexit has done nothing else, it has convinced the EU of the unbelievable importance of sticking together. Uh, so, so we have done them a great favour, and we have, of course, removed by our, just really, the biggest and most obstreperous member, who made it very difficult for them to do all sorts of things. I think, for example, the the big economic package, climate, and all the rest of it, with the big increase in, in the 750 billion euro pro- economic package that they put together would be inconceivable that the British had been a member. I think the British have basically failed to understand that basically. I think all Europeans, all European countries, not all Europeans, agree at least as they are now there is absolutely no alternative to making the EU work. And anybody who knows anything about the history of Europe as a continent can understand why they feel that and why they feel that much more than the British do. It is obviously possible to imagine a government emerging, which is genuinely Eurosceptic in a, in a major European country, but I see absolutely no sign of it whatsoever so far. Marine Le Pen will not be the next president of France, neither will Zamour. And finally, what would a Trump presidency mean? That is, uh, of all the uncertainties we've been discussing, massive uncertainties about everything, that's the most uncertain. What mental state would he be in? He's pretty peculiar already. Uh, what sort of Congress would he have? But I think the basic assumption we would have to have that under a Trump presidency, yes, it was, and considerably under the last one, but even more so, we would have a rogue US in the sense that it will be completely unpredictable. All its traditional relations, alliances, and policies will be up in the air, and they might be up in the air day to day. You know, I'm not talking about up in the air and then you know there are new ones. I mean, up in the there. this is a man who never read a briefing paper. He's very f- notorious for this. You can talk to people who work for him. Worked, uh, or for him. And then in addition, it, it would undoubtedly create a massive upheaval in the domestic Body politic. Given that the history of Trump and particularly the end of his administration in the accusations of electoral fraud, it would be seen by many Americans as signifying uh, an open-ended assault on American democracy. So, I think basically you would you would have to expect an immensely erratic presidency. Very. Anti internationalists, the climate thing will be out of the window. For example, obviously NATO will probably be out of the window too, and America will become completely overturned in an overturned, sorry, interned in a state of intense internal uh, friction and conflict. Not, I think, a world that most of us would like to see, at least certainly not one that I would like to see.
1: Okay, two more questions that I'm going to link together, although they're not obviously linked. Uh, Nuclear power and cryptocurrency. For the former, for nuclear power, is there going to be a comeback? And for the latter, cryptocurrency, is it a scam?
2: Well, uh, on the latter, my view is yes. But it depends how you define a scam. Do cryptocurrencies have any intrinsic value? Obviously not. Could they be made to have value as working currencies of their own, in which a vast proportion of the world's commerce is transacted, replacing state-made currency? I find that extremely implausible, and we're certainly not seeing it so far, except for so-called stable coins, which just substitutes for already existing coins. So we're talking about, I'm talking about things like Bitcoin, which I don't think become currencies, could they become valuable just because people want to hold them and, th- and they want to hold them because they think somebody else will buy them? Yes, for a while, but I think it's a bubble and no bubble lasts forever. So I'm, I, I'm not in, I'm not part of this crowd of enthusiasts, probably shows, shows I'm old and out of touch. Now, what, what was the other one? Sorry, I apologize. Nuclear power. Nuclear, nuclear power. power. Now, this is something on mm. which I'm genuinely and consciously agnostic. I don't know enough about the economics of nuclear power as against other ways of stabilizing. And we basically, we have a problem, which is if we move to renewables, renewables are inherently variable in their output. It's obvious. And so the question is, how do you stabilize the production of electricity when the primary sources of electricity are highly variable? And there are broadly speaking, three ways of doing this. One, massive international trade, uh, you, uh, you import renewable electricity from places which are happen to have surpluses. And if you imagine a global grid, maybe you get some way that that's a long way away. Second storage. So we have massive storage uh, capacity and the only plausible one as far as I can see really some um, batteries of one kind, possibly hydrogen as well. But anyway, and the third possible stability is a base load is nuclear. And there is passionate opposition in the environmental community to this, but I've never been persuaded that that is really uh, it. And I would not be surprised, but I know how controversial what I'm going to say is that in the end, if we really are going to do what we promised to do in power generation, that base load from nuclear will be an important part of the mix. And certainly the French think so. And they've done pretty well in reducing emissions and, of course, in stabilizing electric supply with a very, very large nuclear load. But at the moment, the politics of this and the economics of this just don't work. So if it does happen, we're a very, very long way from it and it won't come soon.
1: What will finally probably be our final question. A couple of minutes to go, Martin. Will 2022 realistically see significant regulatory crackdowns on big tech, both here in the UK and in other countries as well, obviously the United States? And if that were to happen, what would the impact be?
2: Well, I think myself that the only significant player in this is the US government. And the reason is, because it's the US government, but it's also where all the big companies are. So they have the leverage and it's no doubt the Lena Khan, who's the, the, the competition Tsar and, uh, and uh, Biden would want to do this. So two questions. One, can they actually get this through against what is, after all, the most powerful economic lobby you can imagine? And I think it's going to be, given the nature of American politics, unbelievably difficult to make a real difference. So my guess would be that they will do something. Some of them might be quite significant, but the the sheer power and wealth of the major tech companies is now such that it won't make a significant difference to their underlying business model or models, or which are different, of course, or to their immense economic and technological power. We have to assume, I think, that this particular genie or set of genies uh, is out of the bottle. Mm.
1: Okay, just before we finish, the crisis of democratic capitalism. Have you finished it, Martin? Where is it? Uh, I I have
2: finished the text and I'm still debating with my editor on when we're going to whether he, he wants some more changes, I've I've revised it all, and but I hope it will be within 2022, but maybe early 2023, and it discusses many of the subjects we have just been talking about.
1: Is what you're discussing a crisis of liberal democracy? I mean, is it is it when you yes. think of populism and and you think yes. of how democracy is defined? Is 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 that where you are?
2: Yes, what I'm saying basically is that our system is a complex interrelationship of a managed market economy with a democratic representative political system. This is a very complicated and fragile and rather modern political and economic system. system. I mean, basically universal suffrage democracy is only a little over a century old. Even wide suffrage democracy is only about one and a half centuries old, not very long. And it is clearly now on the multiple. In crisis on multiple fronts, which I don't think I have time to go into now, and uh, and as things are at the moment, and I think Trump is a symptom of this. I think Brexit was a symptom of this myself. I think there are lots of other symptoms, by the way, the disenchantment of much of our population, the alienation from elites, and so forth, which indicate a political, a, a political economic, political economy in crisis. And what I address is one: why are we here? We discussed some of it, de is a very big part of this and, uh, and China is another big part of it. And I also discussed what I might do about it, but I think it is intelligent to consider liberal democracy as a system in considerable stress because the economics and the politics are not working together anymore.
1: Martin, it's been a huge pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for for sparing the time. And um, thank you also to to people who've asked questions, particularly those who've asked questions that I didn't get to, but we got a fair few of them.